DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an Associate Professor and the Academic Dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the Academic Advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. It's great to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me. What a delight to continue this journey through the sixth mansion of Teresa of Avila's interior castle. My goodness, what a huge place this mansion is. Yeah, no, there's a lot of things going on in it. In this one, she kind of tackles the idea of visions. You might call them interior visions is what she's talking about. So this isn't quite the same as an apparition, which is a little bit more of a rare occurrence. Visions are a little bit more common. But in this one, she kind of lays out or helps us understand why we shouldn't really desire visions or try to generate visions because the evil one can replicate them. Instead, we should be open to the gift when God wants to give it and how he wants to give it. And to help us understand what that is and why this gift can be a good thing, she gives us some different analogies. And she also helps us see an analogy for why kind of trying to seize or grasp one of these visions for oneself can be a little bit dangerous. Well, just even the nomenclature of this help us to understand the difference between an apparition, which I would think you would be able to see with your eyes, and what she's describing as a vision. These are powers that are in you that are related to the senses, but not quite the same. So your exterior senses that touch the visible world around you. Your interior senses, your imagination, pulls from all of these exterior things to kind of put together a whole And from that hole, you begin to abstract and come to a judgment about what the truth is. And so that requires your intellect. So your imagination has a very, very important role to play in helping you see the truth. And usually your imagination receives its information through the external senses, your sight, your hearing, your taste, your sense of touch. That's normative, but God can speak directly into your imagination itself. And he does this in a variety of different ways. But one of the ways he can speak into your imagination is by a vision. And so it's not something that you see with your eyes, but you do see it in your imagination. And it's not simply your imagination generating something on its own. It's moved by God in a very powerful way to see something that is objective and outside itself, but that you can't see with your eyes. With an apparition, in an apparition like the apparition of the Virgin Mary, it seems as if your senses, your eyes and your ears actually see and hear something 
that is manifesting in the visible world, even though others may not be able to see the apparition, you are definitely seeing it and your senses are fully engaged with it. So God has a whole bunch of different ways to communicate to us. This apparition is an extraordinary mystical phenomena. This vision in your imagination is not quite as extraordinary. If a great saint came up to me and told me they never had an imaginative vision in their life, I probably wouldn't be disturbed by that very much. It seems, though, that when you read the lives of the saint and when you talk to people who pray, the Lord can speak directly into our imagination, either with things that we see with our imagination or things we hear in our imagination. And they're not simply self-generated, but somehow they're generated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit communicates to us this vision or sometimes a locution, a message that we hear. And it's always for our edification and sometimes even for the edification of the church. Apparitions tend to be for the edification of the church. They tend to be more of an extraordinary mystical phenomena that is meant to somehow build up the church. It is interesting that she does speak, as she says in the third paragraph, the third section of this chapter, where she says that the image is seen by the interior sight alone. But then she'll say, but of bodily apparitions, I can say nothing for the person I know so intimately, never having experienced anything of the kind herself, could not speak about them with certainty. You know, I always wonder when she talks about this person, is she talking about herself or is it truly someone else that she knows? It's a little bit of both, depending on the context. I suspect in this particular context, she is talking about herself. But oftentimes she'll refer to herself in the third person because it's a more more polite way of referring to your own experience. What she's saying, though, is just a good starting point. It's kind of hard to reflect on what exactly an apparition is until you've had one. It's really hard for me to give more than kind of the vaguest description other than the one I just gave. We are able to understand more this interior vision that she describes in this chapter because this was something that she experienced herself in prayer. So you'll notice she'll uncover details for us that that kind of go beyond just a general knowledge of something. She's going to talk about some personal experience, even if to do that, she refers to it sometimes in the third person. Yeah, it's interesting that too, that she describes this, this scene within, I want to say the eyes of the heart or the ears of the heart. It's not unlike what St. Hildegard would say about her experience. That was more of a vision of the intellect that encompassing of the imagination, she never said that what she experienced was something that she saw with her eyes. There's a little bit of a difference, though. Mm -hmm. Hildic visions are extremely interesting to study because she had them over such a long period of time from such an early age, and they kind of stayed with her throughout her life. And then the way she communicates them also shifts. In the beginning, she tries to describe the vision with prose and then provide doctrinal explanations of it that come from Jesus, a conversation with Jesus. And she says regarding those visions in particular that they weren't something that ever led her into ecstasy. She was wide awake and perfectly aware of everything that was going on around her when this prayer experience happened. 
What we're going to see here, or what Teresa describes, is something that almost always the soul falls into ecstasy after experiencing it, has a hard time paying attention to anything else because it's so poignant. And this isn't to say that St. Hildegard's visions weren't poignant, but they were just different. And so this is an interesting phenomena. Uh, Everybody wants to kind of like do this taxonomy of religious experiences as if you can like map them all out on the wall. There's some merit in trying to do that. But the reality is that varieties of the way the Holy Spirit can work in our lives are so manifold to try to say that we've completed the list of them and we have them all down is the more you read, the more you realize how uniquely God manifests himself to each soul. That being said, I think here Teresa Vavila is talking about an ordinary grace related to our baptism that unfolds in our life of prayer as we reach these higher stages. And the second thing we can say about this is that uh, this kind of vision gives you certain graces that you need for your spiritual growth. But this is the thing. They are given. They are not seized. And as a gift from God, it's not something that we self-produce. And this is kind of her effort here. If I may say one more thing about Hildegard's vision, that I, Mm -hmm. I started to say that she describes them in prose. At the end of her life, she describes them in music. And that's quite a development. In other words, she ran out of words to express them in prose. There were truths that were being communicated to her that only music could convey. And even then, I imagine quite poorly. In fact, we have words of songs that she began to compose with no music attached to them. Even the music she was trying to use to convey what was going on in her heart seems to have been failing her towards the end. That kind of vision is a very powerful and extraordinary grace because it was used for the building up of the church. These visions that she describes here are not so much for the building up of the church, but the sanctification of the individual soul. You'll see that there's ecstasy and dread. There is deep conviction, and there is also fear of the Lord. There is the attitude that we should have towards these particular graces that Teresa is describing for us is one of extreme humility and reverence for the sovereign greatness of the Lord. Well, as in this experience is hopefully a movement of the Holy Spirit in the soul of this person who is having this incredible encounter. As I said, we hope that it's the Holy Spirit. But Teresa, being very wise as she is, kind of gives us a light on a movement that may not be of the Holy Spirit. Now we have to be cautious in some regards. The way she begins to get at the due caution that we should have is she uses this analogy of a locket. You have a a locket, she says, somebody has given you a gift with a beautiful treasure inside it, but they have given it to you locked. They want you to see the treasure that's inside it, and eventually you're going to see it. But it would be singularly inappropriate for you to try to unlock it or break open to see the jewel yourself until the owner unlocked it for you. The owner knows when is best for you to see what is inside and for how long you need to see it. And so what she's setting up 
is when it comes to things like visions and extraordinary graces in prayer, extreme trust, humility and trust is called for. I want to have this religious experience or this kind of thing, and you're trying to self-generate it. What's behind that is maybe a lack of trust that the Lord knows what you need, when you need it, and how you need it. In order to receive a gift, you need to receive it in the mode of a gift. And a gift is never forced or seized. It's always welcomed and received. And that's what she's trying to point here. To understand then what happens when you try to seize the gift, you're disposed to being gravely deluded or even deceived by the evil one. Because the evil one is capable of impressing things in your imagination. His ability, in fact, the way temptation works, is he suggests things in your imagination. She uses the image of a picture, a picture that doesn't disclose the truth of the Lord, that looks beautiful and kind of dazzles your senses. And I'm talking about a painted picture, but it's just like theologically wrong. No matter how beautiful the picture is, it's not going to help your prayer. So a picture of Jesus depicted in a way that, however beautifully executed and wonderfully done, if he's depicted in a way that kind of obscures his holiness or casts an ambiguity over his goodness or makes him look somehow like he's duplicitous, no matter how beautiful that picture is, that's a bad picture. It's planting something inside your imagination. That's true of the earthly picture. What about the evil one and what he can do in your soul? He can certainly plant things in your imagination. And what's planted in your imagination, the slight errors that are in it, the lack of truth that is in it, is going to, if you let it into your heart, it's going to do damage. This is why we need to be so humble about visions. They can be so radiant and so beautiful and draw our attention so much. And yet radiance, making things look really, really good, is what the devil does best. He does radiance really well. He makes cow manure look like it's pure gold. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. We can't presume that he won't do the same thing to us. You know, think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were invited to eat all the fruit in the garden. If they took from the tree of good and evil, rather than receiving a gift, they were seizing what they wanted. That's the difference. When they picked from the other trees, those all of that fruit was given to them as a pure gift. But the evil one wanted them to seize something for their own. When you are set up and disposed to see the radiance of the evil one, you're especially vulnerable to it. It talks in paragraph nine about confessors having due concern over these visions because of the dangers that they might pose. And that's why it's good to bring these visions up if you go to confession and just say, you know, this happened in my prayer. And just humbly lay it before the priest or a spiritual director. Caution is necessary and time should be allowed to see what effects follow after you've received this. Day by day, the progress of the soul in humility and the virtues should be watched. If the devil is concerned in the matter, he will soon show signs of himself and will be detected in a thousand lies. 
if the confessor has experienced and has received such favors himself, he will not take long in discovering the truth. In fact, he will know immediately on being told of the vision, whether it is divine or comes from the imagination or comes from the demon. More especially, if he has received the gift of discerning spirits, then if he is learned, he will understand the matter at once, even though he has not personally experienced the light. Now, this is an interesting thing because these visions can come from three places. It can come from God, and when it does, it always has great fruits. And the fruits begin during the vision and continue after the vision. It can also come from one's own imagination, in which case it just doesn't produce the same fruit. You self-generated something. That, that happens in prayer sometimes. In fact, in the Ignatian exercises, the whole purpose of the exercises is to generate holy images in your imagination. And that's a, a, a otherwise good thing, but it just doesn't communicate the same amount of grace as when God produces something in your imagination. The third thing, and this is the danger of relying on the imagination alone, is that the demonic can get into your imagination. And this is why a confessor would have kind of due suspicion. And so if if you go to your confessor or your spiritual director and say, I'm, I've had a vision, and he looks like he doesn't believe you or he starts asking all these questions, it's not necessarily because he has a problem with prayer or he's not holy or, or something like that. If he's an experienced director, he knows people who the evil one really got hold of them through their imagination. So he wants you to begin to help him discern what's going on. So if this is something that should be disavowed, it can be disavowed. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying, Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us. That we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. It is probably one of the most instructive sections in the interior castle that we will find in this Six Mansion Chapter 9, where she actually lays out very systematically the reasons in trying to discern and for the soul to understand what they are going through. Am I overstating that? No, I think it's true. There's like riches in here that that are wonderful to talk about and consider. She's opening up a mystery that doesn't often get talked about, but but happens when we pray because, you know, we are using our imagination in prayer. And sometimes our own power of imagination is used by the Holy Spirit in a very singular way. And sometimes a more special favor comes. And here she is trying to provide some light. If I could just read 11, this is so powerful. A great theologian once said that he should not trouble himself, though the devil, who is a clever painter, should present before his eyes the living image of Christ, which would only kindle his devotion and defeat the evil one with his own weapons. However wicked an artist may be, we should reverence his picture if he represents him who is our good. So this kind of gives you the opposite of what I was saying. What if the evil one depicts an image of Christ uh, in your imagination that looks really, really great and rouses your devotion. Well, if it rouses your devotion, even though it's the devil, it hasn't done any harm. The great scholar held that it was very wrong to advise anyone who saw a vision of our Lord to offer it signs of scorn because we are bound to show respect to the portrait of our King wherever we see it. I am sure that he was right, for even in the world, anyone who was on friendly terms with a person, would take it as an offense or his portrait treated with contempt. How much more should we always show respect to a crucifix or a picture of our heavenly sovereign wherever it meets our gaze? What should you do with the images that you have in your imagination when they are holy images? And I'm talking about images where Jesus's holiness comes through your imagination in such a beautiful way, you are moved to devotion. Instead of being confused, you're moved to devotion. Should you reject those visions and be afraid of those visions? And Teresa Valdo is saying, don't be afraid of this vision. There's due caution. We don't want to be seduced by the evil one. We don't want to try to see something. And that's why there's a kind of this detachment where you're not trying to seize things. But in this paragraph, the Holy Spirit's on our side. He can even use the evil one to rouse our devotion. So something that is in a certain sense a false vision because it didn't come from the Holy Spirit. It came from another spirit, but it moved us to devotion. That's the most important thing of all. 
whenever something rouses you to devotion and leads you to worship God, then there's no reason to be afraid. Still, though, you want to submit that to your director because the evil one might try to abuse that in other ways in the future. When you have a vision, interior vision in your imagination, though, that is from God, and you just have decided that no matter the vision that you get, you're just going to reject it outright and not thank God for the gift, you may actually be kind of spurning or scorning a gift from God. And Teresa is just providing a word of caution that the scorning everything that happens in your imagination may not be a good pathway either. A certain open humility and readiness to reverence Christ is what she's trying to counsel. I made just this last sentence. I know someone who was deeply pained at being bidden to behave in this way to scorn every vision. I know not who can have invented such torture for one who felt bound to obey the counsel given by her confessor, for she would have thought her soul was at stake had she disobeyed him. My advice is, if you are given such an order that humbly alleging the reasons I have set before you to your confessor, you should not carry it out. I am perfectly satisfied with the motives given for doing so by him who counseled me on this subject. In other words, what she's saying is, even if your confessor does ask you to scorn visions that you receive in prayer, you shouldn't do that. You should be always humble before the Lord, always humble before a sacred humanity that's communicated to you in your imagination, no matter where it comes from. It's just that you will notice afterwards you won't get the same fruit as when it's the Lord. And if you're not being possessive of it, trying to seize it, it's not going to do damage in your soul. What would do damage is if the evil one presented something that's not producing fruit and you try to seize that vision and go back to it again and again and again. That's probably not going to help you. And that goes with the counsel that she's giving. Yeah, it's also interesting, too, if I could offer this up, Anthony, and you please correct me if you think I'm out of line. But Teresa's also speaking as a woman, and as a woman myself, I can attest that for women in particular, we see more often than not in images in our mind. We utilize our imagination more. I mean, there have been studies about that where men are a bit more analytical. They experience things in a different way. So even in our prayer experience as women, there's a difference in how God may be communicating to us, and that has to be respected And maybe that's something that sometimes if we do have those wonderful, blessed, holy men in our lives, they may not see that or appreciate that quite as fully as I could say as a woman does. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think in general, there's a certain truth to that. There's another way of of looking at it, too. Somebody shares a vision that they've had or something that they've imagined that's very, very beautiful. The way we should respond to that if you're confessor, spiritual director, or a spiritual friend listening to somebody, is to thank God that they receive such a gift. We can discern it. We can ask God to help us understand, what does this mean? What are you trying to do through this gift? What, what's going on there? Especially if you're a good spiritual friend, a good confessor, that it's important. You know, What kind of fruits are you seeing and that kind of thing? Just to kind of write it off as unimportant 
I think is a very dangerous thing to do. No matter the male or female thing, if somebody's had this experience, our job is to thank God that he's at work in their soul and that they're living a life of prayer, to try to maybe help them discern what's going on. But then also, and this is the second part of it, not to kind of either belittle it on one hand or on the other hand, become too fascinated with it, where you start coveting it for yourself. When you start coveting your neighbor's goods, even the spiritual goods, like a vision, it's never good for the body of Christ and it's never good for your own spiritual life. And so sometimes the evil one will produce maybe a vision in one person in order to solicit envy in another and to pull down the community. What we need to do is thank God for the beautiful things that happen in each other's imaginations. And if the Lord does speak through our sisters in the church, through their imagination more, what a wonderful gift uh, if that's true. And to be respected just is, is a powerful thing, wonderful thing. And I don't ever need to belittle it, but maybe the Lord speaks to me in a totally different way. I have to be kind of humble about how he speaks to me and not covetous about how he speaks to my neighbor. I need to be kind of in that kind of spiritual poverty that's ready to receive what God wants to give me, when he wants to give me, and how he wants to give me, and not be so concerned about what he's giving my neighbor other than to thank God for the wonderful things he's doing in my brother or sister who's shared some grace with me. Right now, obviously, this counsel really applies for people who've invested themselves in a life of prayer, are sometimes discouraged because nothing seems to be going on. And then you hear this other person over here whose spiritual life seems to be just beginning, and you can't help yourself. You start thinking, what about me? You know, Well, fight that. That's really not of the Lord at all. The Lord is giving you things so wondrous because of your faithfulness to him. Your faithfulness and your generosity to the Lord are never, ever outdone. So we can thank the Lord for what he does in my neighbor, but I can also be open to the gifts that he wants to give me and welcome those, whatever they might be. Well, Anthony, I mean, this kind of leads to a point that I have to be very careful. I want to say this in all reverence and to be respectful of all the different parties, because as you pointed out over and over and over in previous conversations that we've had, you just don't know what God is doing in someone's heart. But this really calls to the sensitivity and the tender accompaniment that spiritual directors have with those they're directing. I know that I've experienced in my life encounters with others who have gone to direction, they're sweet souls, and have been spoken to by quote-unquote spiritual directors who didn't seem to appreciate the tenderness in which to approach the soul. Maybe it's more of a, a flip of that where they as you said, it, it doesn't seem to fit a pattern, or I don't think that this was a valid experience, or they make certain judgments that are crushing as mm. opposed to helping to guide them through the cavernous valley they seem to be in. It makes me sometimes just a, a bit, and maybe this is my own self-righteous nature, but it makes me angry sometimes. Maybe that person is not experiencing what they think they are, 
you have to be very tender about these things, don't you? Yeah, there's an empathy that we need to have with each other in regards to these things. And there's also a tendency to overreact when we hear about somebody having an experience that is unusual or that we haven't had ourselves. And especially if you have a judgmental attitude towards them, like, you know, you know, their head is always in the sky and, and they're not very realistic people and they lack common sense. And so now they're having visions, you know, Yeah. <laughs> and you carry all this stuff in your heart and then they disclose something to you and this garbage just comes out. It's not edifying. And the work in spiritual direction, the number one thing that the spiritual director must do is help the soul see the beautiful thing that God is doing in it. Only when the soul sees the beautiful thing that God is accomplishing in its steps can the soul begin to understand how to respond to the love that is at work in it. And that's when a spiritual director is always helping the directee respond rightly to the way that God is loving that soul. Sometimes you have to convict people and because they've gotten into dangerous things. And, and sometimes you have to warn them against not being too kind of addicted or fascinated with visions or extraordinary mystical phenomena and that kind of thing. Each conversation is so extraordinary in itself, unique, unrepeatable. So it's, it's very hard for me to talk about all the different scenarios that might come up. There is a place for admonishment and correction. It's not the main thing you tell a soul. soul. It's not the last thing or the first thing you tell a soul. The first thing, the last thing is that you, we need to give the soul confidence that God is working in it, that God is the one in control, that God gets to define the terms of the narrative, that not my brokenness, not the evil one, but God is at the center of everything, accomplishing and making everything work to redound for his glory. And that we should have confidence and trust and conviction and sense of purpose about that structure of the world and the structure of the soul that we have. What doesn't define the situation is deception, even if it comes from the devil. But if we're overreactive, overly fearful about the beautiful things that God is doing, we could actually frustrate and discourage a soul when it needs to be encouraged to trust more. Amen. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you'll find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.